New light shines on Saturn, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Linda Spilker is back. The Cassini Mission Deputy Project Scientist has news from Saturn and its mysterious moons and rings. We'll check in with her in a couple of minutes. Bruce Betts has end-of-year tidings of the night sky and a new space trivia contest. And we'll finish with something special from Emily Lakdawalla, a solar system version of a classic holiday poem. And speaking of both Emily and Cassini, take a look at her image for day 27 of the solar system advent calendar. It's a brand new and quite striking shot of Saturn's little ring moon, Prometheus. We've got the direct link at planetary.org slash radio. We've also got four spectacular movies of Cassini's moons swinging past each other and the great planet's rings. They are a wonderful late Christmas present. I'll be right back with Linda Spilker. With his own wishes for the new year, here's Bill. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the planetary guy here, vice president of the Planetary Society. First of all, scientists have found super-Earths on nearby stars. Right over there at 61 Virginus, they found a planet that's, that's Earth-sized. And sooner or later, they're going to find Earth-sized planets that are in the zone where there'd be liquid water. And then we're going to go looking for life. And that's going to be exciting. Excuse me, Bill. I know you haven't introduced me to your special guest uh, so far, but it's, it's actually double Earth-sized, not Earth-sized. Wait, are you from the future? We'll get back to that. Wow. In the meantime, coming up in January... There's going to be a luncheon with people who have helped blaze the way for us to explore the stars. Buzz Aldrin will be celebrating his 80th birthday, and Stephen Hawking, the man who helped so many of us understand our relationship with time and the universe, will also be at the luncheon. And with us also is someone from the distant future, the doctor from Star Trek Voyager. Please state the nature of your year-end emergency. That's right, Bill. I am here to wish you all a very happy new year and to tell you that 2010, some pretty cool things will happen. I, of course, know what they are. I'm not at liberty to share because I do not want to affect the timeline in any way. Wow. Jeez, Doc. That's exciting. No, Robert Picardo's here with me on the advisory board of the Planetary Society, and this is going to be a big year. These big discoveries made in space, space policy is going to be figured out in the United States, and we are going to change the world. Well, Robert and I have got to fly. Bill Nye, the planetary guy. The Cassini-Huygens mission continues to return some of the most spectacular images and science in the history of space exploration. Regular listeners know that we turn to longtime deputy project scientist Linda Spilker for her insightful and enthusiastic reviews of the latest from that spacecraft that has been touring Saturn, its rings, and its moons for five and a half years. She has lots to report this time. We didn't even get to the marvelous movies of Saturn's aurora in action. And don't miss the just-as-great videos of the ring planet's moons that I mentioned a few minutes ago. The links are at planetary.org radio. Linda, I think I may be uh, visiting with you a little bit earlier than we normally would, but really there has just been so much going on. It, just in last week's show, we talked with Emily Lakdawalla about this, uh, well, I guess it's confirmation of a lake on Titan. 
Yes, it's very exciting, Matt. It turns out that we've seen for the first time a glint of sunlight reflected off a lake called Kraken Mare. It's a huge lake in Titan's northern hemisphere. It's about 150,000 square miles, and that's larger than the Caspian Sea. And what this glint does is it confirms the presence of a liquid in this large northern lake. And what's very interesting is we didn't see this glint at visible wavelengths, much like you'd see a glint as you're flying in an airplane over a, a lake or something. If the conditions are just right, see a, a bright flash off of the lake. But instead, we saw this glint at 5 microns. And that's a wavelength much longer than you can see with your eyes. It's in the near-infrared. And it's where Titan's atmosphere is clear enough that it absorbs little enough sunlight so it could get to the surface and reflect back up to us, causing this glint. The spectra that were taken as we flew over this lake were the very brightest when we were actually on the lake and then not bright at all when we were off the lake. And so we were able to take radar images of this region of Titan and map the VIM spectra onto it. So, so very exciting to see another body. This makes Titan uh, the only other body in our solar system uh, with a liquid on its surface. And, and this liquid is, is methane on Titan. Methane plays the same role that water plays on the Earth as a liquid. It can be a liquid or a solid or a vapor. And so you have weather on Titan with methane. And a lot of the same kinds of things that water does on Earth to form the geology that we know of our planet. Uh, that's exactly right. You get uh, stream beds and rivers. You get the methane actually carving the surface or eroding down the mountaintops and creating a, a surface that's in many ways very much like the Earth's surface. Mm. Now, Emily talked about this having taken a lot longer for Cassini to, to catch this glint than anybody expected. Why was that? Well, it turns out that when Cassini arrived at Saturn, Titan's northern hemisphere was in darkness. And most of the lakes are in the, the north. There are just a couple of lakes in the south. And so as we went through equinox and as the sun was rising and it started to become spring uh, and the sunlight hit those northern lakes, that gave us the first opportunity to see it. And actually, it was just a lucky find. We weren't looking at the time for a specular reflection and conditions were just right when we took that VIMS image of Titan to see the specular reflection. And, and we're certainly going to keep on looking for more of those as the mission continues. Now, is this discovery, is this going to help uh, find more of these uh, reflections and uh, discover additional lakes? As the, yes, as the sun continues to rise, uh, and we now have more of the north in sunlight, we'll be looking for those special geometries where you can get that specular reflection from, or that glint from the sun and then continue to use it to probe other lakes and see if we have liquid there and also especially going from the, the, along the lake edges to see what we might be able to find. All right, let's jump over to another moon of Saturn, and that's uh, Iapetus, which uh, has been one that has uh, been full of mystery for a very long time. And I take it some of this mystery has uh, maybe been solved. Uh, we're bit by bit trying to understand this very unusual moon, Iapetus. It's sort of the yin-yang moon. It has one <laughs> very bright side and one very dark side. It turns out that the leading side, the side that faces forward as it orbits Saturn, is much, much darker than the trailing side. In fact, the bright material is about a factor of 10 brighter, 10 times brighter than the dark material. And both the north and the south poles of Iapetus are bright, too. I, th I think of it as the black and white cookie moon. 
Right, right. Where one side is very dark and the other side is very, very bright. Uh, the leading hemisphere has both the bright and dark material that's present there is redder, as though there's some kind of a dust that's coating the leading side of Iapetus. And in fact, just recently in Spitzer data, there's a new giant ring discovered out around the, the orbit of Phoebe and going inward, and perhaps dust from those tiny moons that orbit outside the main Saturn moons might be contributing dust that's coating Iapetus. And then Iapetus is another interesting thing. It takes 79 days for Iapetus to turn once on its axis, so it has a very long day. And what this allows is that the sun has a long time to warm up the dark material. In fact, it can warm up the dark material enough that the water vapor, any water, is volatilized and moves to the bright region. So you can kind of think of the warm region like a blanket. Any water material there sort of evaporates and moves toward the bright regions and then freezes out again on the bright regions, both at the poles and on the trailing side of Iapetus. Let me make sure I understand. But Iapetus is tidally locked, and that's why it always has this leading edge that is gathering all the flotsam from the possibly from the rings? Right. That's exactly right. Since it keeps one side facing Saturn, it always has then one side leading or sweeping up the dust in the Saturn system. So we're pretty confident now that uh, we understand why uh, this moon presents uh, such a, uh, a, a contrast, quite literally. Yeah, in fact, Iapetus uh, might be undergoing sort of a runaway feedback loop where the dark material, as the water ice goes away and, and freezes out on the bright regions, there's more dark material, which means it can get even warmer if you've had a really dark sweater on on a warm day. You know that with a dark sweater, you warm up even more than you would if you had on, say, a white T-shirt or something. More from Cassini Deputy Project Scientist Linda Spilker when Planetary Radio continues. I'm Robert Picardo. I traveled across the galaxy as the doctor in Star Trek Voyager. Then I joined the Planetary Society to become part of the real adventure of space exploration. The Society fights for missions that unveil the secrets of the solar system. It searches for other intelligences in the universe, and it built the first solar sail. It also shares the wonder through this radio show, its website, and other exciting projects that reach around the globe. I'm proud to be part of this greatest of all voyages, and I hope you'll consider joining us. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org radio, or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Our nearly 100,000 members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. We're in the middle of one of Linda Spilker's regular reports on the Cassini-Huygens mission. Linda is Cassini's deputy project scientist and has been with the mission since well before its 1997 launch. She spoke with me from her office at the Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. Let's go down to the big planet, and uh, lots of curiosity. In fact, we've had a couple of listeners uh, write to us about how could this hexagon, this polar hexagon, be a, a natural formation, and there must be something mysterious going on here. Well, maybe not so mysterious, but certainly magnificent, and I guess you've gotten back some uh, really not, I don't guess, I've seen them, some beautiful new images. Right. Again, as the sun has been illuminating the north pole of Titan, the same thing has been happening at Saturn. 
and it turns out there's this north polar hexagon. We have really no good idea of what's causing its shape. It was first seen by the Voyager spacecraft almost 30 years ago, and that's the last time that the north polar region was in sunlight. And it turns out that Cassini's visual infrared mapping spectrometer could see it in darkness because it's looking at infrared light and the heat coming up from Saturn. But for the very first time at Equinox, we had a chance to see it with the cameras as well and get very, very detailed images of this hexagon. It's wider than about two Earths, and the hexagon jet stream whips around at about 220 miles per hour. And so it's quite a large structure, and the fact that it's lasted for 30 years when uh, weather or hurricanes on the Earth have such a much shorter lifetime is a real puzzle. It's powerful strange to see what appears to be a more or less regular polygon at the, uh, at the top of this planet. I mean, are we beginning to understand why, why something like this would form? Well, we're not sure why it formed and in particular why it has this particular shape. There's lots of ideas, and perhaps we'll get better clues with these images. At the corners of the hexagon, you see little waves, little curly cues coming off. There's a multi-wall structure along each of the six sides that go all the way up to the top of uh, Saturn's atmosphere. So perhaps we can put some of these clues together. But we don't have a good story yet for exactly why the hexagon formed and what's keeping it in the shape that it has today. Lots of mysteries left to go as Cassini uh, continues to circle that planet. You mentioned uh, the discovery of that that very dim, that very faint uh, ring, and I I know you uh, are something of a ring specialist, or a ring scientist. Is there anything that you'd like to add about uh, what we've learned in the last few months uh, about the rings and what we've seen? Well, we've gone through a very interesting period of time uh, called equinox at Saturn, and it allowed the rings to go from sort of a two-dimensional flat structure to a third dimension as the sun got very low. Anything big in the rings would cast shadows, and we saw some very magnificent shadows cast by larger objects in the rings. Some of the edges of the gaps actually have structure that makes it stick up above and below, and so it it gave us a chance to study uh, Saturn's rings in a new way, and that's been very exciting, and we're still looking through the data Uh, trying to understand all that we've discovered there. But Equinox proved to be uh, as exciting and informative as all of you had hoped. Oh, I think even more so. We we saw some things we expected, and always what's the most fun is to find the unexpected. Mm. Good scientist. Uh, What's ahead? Every week I get the uh, regular reports uh, in uh, my email, and it always starts out with, Cassini is in excellent, uh, an excellent state of health which is awfully nice to hear because there's so much more left to do. Uh, What should we be looking forward to over the next few months? Well, over the next few months, we'll be having additional flybys of some of Saturn's moons. And in particular, we'd like to find out if Enceladus is the only moon in the Saturn system that's active. There are tantalizing hints that perhaps uh, Dione and, and maybe Rhea might be active in looking at some of the magnetic field data. And so we will be on the watch for any signs of activity on some of these other moons in the Saturn system. And, of course, we'll be getting great views of the planet. We're going into a series of orbits that are more nearly equatorial. And if you're a planet scientist, that means that the rings form a thin line at the equator and we'll get some great views of the planet itself. You know, we should have probably talked more about Enceladus because that uh, that little moon continues to fascinate. Uh, and I guess we're beginning to understand it a little bit better, too. Right, right. We had we had a couple of flybys in November where we saw some of these jets. In fact, we saw 
perhaps as many as 30 jets, some of them very tiny, as we saw the South Pole now going into shadow, and so some of these jets were in contrast against the dark part of Enceladus. And so we're trying to put together the pieces of just where along some of these tiger stripes the jets might be active. And now we've seen a few more that we have to explain. And there's a great animation that we'll have to link to once again. We did it a few weeks ago. As the spacecraft was actually approaching those vents and these geysers of material springing out of this moon that we once thought was much too small for this kind of activity. Exciting stuff going on. Yes, absolutely, and a lot more to look forward to. We have many more Enceladus flybys coming up and some more cuts through the plumes. With the uh, recent November flybys, we actually noticed individual jets with the in-situ instruments, the ion and neutral mass spectrometer and the cosmic dust analyzer. Both could see discrete jets as we crossed through them as we flew very, very close to Enceladus. Linda, how long have we got left on the the current uh, extended mission of Cassini? Well, the current extended mission would ends on October 1st of 2010, and we have a proposal in to NASA for a possible seven-year extension, something we call the mm. Cassini Solstice Mission, because what we'd like to do is to go from equinox to solstice on Saturn, where it would be summer in the northern hemispheres of both Saturn and Titan. Wow. Best of luck with that. Uh, I think you uh, know how I and I would suspect most of our audience feel about uh, that opportunity. And uh, thank you once again. Uh, We love these regular reports from you on Cassini, and we'll talk to you again in a few months. Okay. Thanks, Matt. I look forward to it. Linda Spilker is the longtime Deputy Project Scientist for the Cassini-Huygens mission, which continues to explore and reveal more and more of the Saturnian system, and uh, much more to come if uh, the past is any indication of the future. We will uh, move on to the future of this radio show by going to our uh, weekly What's Up segment. That means Bruce Betts will be here in a minute. Don't go away. Time for another holiday What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. It's good to be with you again. I'm sorry that I I couldn't record you at lunch, the Planetary Society lunch last week, because I had left at home the name of our uh, trivia contest winner. But but here you are, and now I have the name in my hot little hand. Well, I just don't feel like doing it now. (laughs) No, we will. Don't worry. We we have a lovely T-shirt for some lucky winner out there who is yet to be revealed. Uh, Tell us about the night sky. All right, fine. In the night sky, in the evening, we've got Jupiter still very bright in the first uh, two or three hours after sunset over in the west before it sets. Looks like looking like an extremely bright star. Uh, We're also getting Mars down there by, uh, you can see it quite easily by 9 p.m., probably by 7 or 8. Uh, And it's going to be over in the east, other side of the sky. On January 2nd, you can see it uh, near the full moon, and it is hanging out in Leo at the moment and getting brighter and brighter until January 29th, when it reaches opposition, opposite side of the Earth from the sun. That uh, means the brightest it's going to get for another uh, couple of years, or uh, even more in this case. It's getting quite bright and looking kind of reddish, and uh, it's quite lovely. Uh, you can also, by the way, when you're looking over there, look uh, kind of a little bit farther south. And uh, we mentioned Orion last week. Well, it's indeed up there. And if you take Orion's belt, a little trick for you, Matt, that you, you probably know. Uh, and you'll have to wait till the uh, mid-evening 
9 p.m., say, 8 p.m., 9 p.m. to do this, you take Orion's belt and you point downward toward the horizon, and you will find Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, looking kind of bluish. Beautiful. Yeah, that's what I thought. Orion itself is looking very beautiful, as it does this time of year. But uh, just a couple of nights ago, it was just a beautiful, reasonably clear night. And uh, boy, it was pretty. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Saturn, speaking of good stuff, rising uh, middle of the night, high in the east before dawn. Check it out with a telescope. See some rings. Uh, let us move on to this week in space history. Hard to believe, Matt. It was five years ago this week that uh, we held uh, the Planet Fest Wild About Mars to celebrate the landing of Spirit on Mars. So that was five years ago. And uh, also the uh, flyby and fly through of the coma of Comet Wild 2, Wild 2, by Stardust. What a party we had. That was really swell five years ago. We move on to. Random Space Fest! And Happy New Year to you, too. Happy New Year, everyone. STS-129, space shuttle mission that returned to Earth just a few weeks ago, uh, slated to be the final space shuttle crew rotation flight to or from International Space Station, final to deliver or remove uh, astronauts or cosmonauts. So from uh, for here on out, uh, no more shuttle. All uh, Russian Soyuz jo- doing the job of uh, cycling astronauts and cosmonauts to the space station. Yeah, working our way toward the end. I was just reading today about uh, NASA bought some uh, spare solid rocket boosters in just in case a rescue mission is needed for the very last scheduled shuttle mission in September of 2010. Coming up, coming up, coming up to retire the shuttle. Mm. Jeez, almost uh, almost 30 years after it started uh, started its work. Good long run. Let's go on to trivia. We asked you a uh, popular primate question. Who is the first chimp to orbit the Earth? How'd we do, Matt? Well, re- orbit, orbit the Earth, by the way. Yes, remember what I said a week ago about dogs yes. and chimps, dogs and monkeys? All true. Huge number of responses. And as I said, here it is. It's in my hand. The winner of a Planetary Radio t-shirt this week is our old friend Tom Hendricks, who enters every week. And he said he believes, and he's correct, the first chimpanzee to orbit the Earth was Enos, aboard uh, Mercury Atlas uh, in November of 1961. He's actually off by a couple of months here, but he got the name right, and that's what we asked for. Interestingly enough, a couple of Soviet men had already orbited the Earth by the time uh, Enos did. Uh, Gagarin and uh, Titov. So uh, he was only the third hominid in orbit, as uh, as someone pointed out. And he had a bad time of it. It was hot up there. And, and someone else said he was electrocuted uh, whenever he touched a control panel, which, you know, might have been on purpose now that I think of it. Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Tom, we're going to send you a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Anyway, he, he did come back at least alive, so... Uh, by the way, Lindsay Dawson mentioned that the first mouse in space, suborbital, uh, August 31st, 1948, tip of a V-2 rocket. Yeah. Interestingly, the uh, first bilge rat just stowed away on the shuttle one time. <laughs> Don't you know that the Mars base is going to have rats? It's, 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 it's going to have rats. They're going to make it. <laughs> spontaneous generation even if they don't go uh so moving on to the next trivia contest as i mentioned mars opposition coming up january 27th here's your question when is the closest approach of mars in the next decade 
to the closest opposition, and how far away will it be from the Earth? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to enter. And you have until, ready? Our first deadline of the new year, January 4, Monday, January 4, at 2 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you all the luck in the world. In fact, all the luck in the solar system. (laughs) All right. Happy New Year, Matt. Happy New Year to you, Bruce. Uh, Thanks for another good year. Happy New Year, all of you out there. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about fun things you did during 2009 and fun things you hope to do in 2010. Thank you, and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. And now for something almost completely different. The Planetary Society's Science and Technology Coordinator usually joins us to review the best of her blog, but Emily Lakdawalla also reads and contributes to unmannedspaceflight.com. That's where she found a special posting by forum member Astro Zero on December 24, Christmas Eve. Astro Zero took a few out-of-this-world liberties with a classic holiday poem many of you will recognize. It's The Night Before Christmas, published anonymously in 1823. Emily liked it so much, she recorded it. Here is her and our gift to you, our listeners. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the stars not a creature was stirring, not even on Mars. The rovers were driven by drivers with care in hopes new discoveries would soon be found there. Earth children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of dust devils danced in their heads. With opiate Marquette and spirit in a sand trap, we just had to settle our brains for a long winter's nap." When out on the dunes there arose such a clatter, and Odyssey watched to see what was the matter. All the way to earth flew a new data flash. JPL opened the files and threw out the trash. The finds on the rovers from new-fallen dust gave the objects below the color of rust, when what to my computer screen should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than rockets, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Viking, now Phoenix, now Pathfinder and Sojourner, on rockets, on airbags, on chutes and retro burners, from the red of the sky to the rocks in the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all! As dry soil that before the dust devils fly when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky. And up to the ops room the engineers flew with drivers full of tricks in new software, too. And then in a twinkling they heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. They drew in their heads and turned right around. Down the corridor St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with red dust on his boot. A bundle of rocks he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as Mars snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and they laughed when they saw him in spite of themselves. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave them to know they had nothing to dread. 
He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to a sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But they heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas on Mars, and to Earth a good night. Emily Lakawala with Astro Zero's rewrite of The Night Before Christmas. Thank you for another wonderful year. We look forward to exploring the new one with you. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Keep looking up.